Let us pray. Gracious and eternal God, we gather today uh, in this place, many of us with anxieties, with concerns, uh, concerns that have to do with our lives, with the world, with all the experiences that we have. And we come here seeking a, a place of refuge and respite. Be among us, we pray, as we contemplate your word. Help us to um, abandon worship of the vain world's golden store and to love you more and more. Be among us and draw us closer to you, we pray, and let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this morning's Gospel lesson offers what is often described as the most difficult of all Jesus' parables, and particularly for those who have to preach on it. Of course, several of the parables are difficult in terms of what they ask us. This one is just plain difficult to understand. On the surface, it appears that a a, a dishonest servant is praised for his clever dishonesty and then offered as a kind of example for Christians. That's pretty tough to comprehend. Many sermons on this text have been devoted to showing that it isn't quite as bad as it sounds. I've preached a few of those sermons myself over the last 44 years. But maybe that's not the best approach. Maybe we should tackle the parable head on this morning with all its problems. And the place that we have to begin is to say that the parable is about money. Our modern translations try to soft-pedal this a little bit using more abstract words like wealth or riches. But the word Jesus used, as recorded in Luke, is actually mammon. You cannot serve God and mammon. It's an odd word, an old-fashioned word to be sure, and one that sort of carries a whiff of greedy immorality. But it doesn't do us any good to sweeten up the words. The parable is still about money. One of my favorite commentators on the parables has long been a a 20th century German theologian, Helmut Thielicke, and this is what he says about this parable. The leading role here is played by unrighteous mammon. What does this thing mean, or better, what does this power mean? in the life of a person who wants to be obedient to God. How should he handle it? For our destiny with God is rarely decided by reflecting upon dogmas and other kinds of otherworldly problems. Our destiny is rather decided by what we do with the altogether real worldly questions and temporal problems which play a part in our life, such as sex and money and personal relations. Yeah, all those real worldly things, you know, the things that we don't really want to talk about in church or hear about in church, and yet the things that we have to face every single day, the things we have to live with every day, the decisions that we face every day, the real worldly things. And if we cannot find guidance in those matters from God, then our heavenly faith is not much earthly good. And so it's significant, first of all, I think, that Jesus is willing to talk about this, to talk about it honestly, 
How do you use your money? That's the question he raises here. And let me emphasize the verb. How do you use your money? It's not entirely obvious that Jesus would talk this way. I mean, money, after all, is the cause of great corruption. Just think about American politics, for example. Money can be a dangerous thing, an ignoble thing. And Jesus could just as well have told us that Christians should just abstain from using money. They should take a vow of poverty and they should keep their hands clean. But that's not what he does. He just assumes that money is a part of the real world, the world in which we live. And he assumes that we're going to have to handle it one way or another. And so his concern is that we use it properly and righteously. And so that's where the steward in the parable comes in. So what's a steward exactly? That's how he's described. What's the job of a steward? To manage things for somebody else, on somebody else's behalf, exactly. And this steward's job involves handling money. And he does it, so the parable suggests, dishonestly. He cheats his master by settling his accounts at a loss. But that's not really Jesus' point. I think what he wants us to see, first of all, is that this man is consciously using money for a particular purpose. And what's the purpose? What's he trying to do by cheating his master? Yeah, relationship with who? Yeah, with the, with the people that, uh, uh, that he's given the discount to, right? So he's trying, he's cheating his master, but he's trying to sort of buy himself friends. And why does he want to do that? Because he's about to be fired. And he wants to, to do this so that he will have some friends who will feel obligated uh, to him and will, will help him out. Uh, this purpose, of course, is not very noble, is it? He's trying to save his own neck, but again, that's not the point. The point is that money is to be used, not hoarded, not wasted, not worshipped, but used, and with a view to the future. It's to be used with a view to the future. One clue to this uh, is in verse 14, which unfortunately is not part of our lesson today. I don't know why they lopped it off at verse 13, because verse 14 is really important. It's the very next verse. Jesus tells the parable, gives his instructions, and then immediately Luke says this. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard this, and they ridiculed him. Lovers of money. Now, I have to say, that kind of startles me. Uh, are the Pharisees good guys or bad guys in the gospel? They're bad guys, usually. But it's not because they loved money, at least not usually. Usually, they're bad guys because they're too wrapped up in the trappings of their religion. They're too zealous in keeping the law, and especially in making sure that everybody else keeps the law. They are self-righteous. They are hypocrites. They're all kinds of bad things. But all their faults stem from the fact that they are really, really religious. 
They are like us. They're the good, upstanding religious people who go to church all the time. But here Luke tells us not that they're hypocrites, but that they're lovers of money. Sort of gives one pause, doesn't it? Religious people like you and me are just as prone to be lovers of money as anyone else. Susan Laurie Park's novel, Getting Mother's Body, has a scene where a couple of people need to come up with some cash for a reasonably noble purpose, and they're considering whom they might ask for help, and one relative, who probably could help, is immediately crossed off the list with the comment, oh, she'd never do it. She and her money have a till-death-do-us-part relationship. (laughs) I love that line, till death do us part. It's, of course, part of the marriage vow. It's a pledge of love, isn't it? And there are some people who love money as if they're married to it, till death do us part. But you see, a lover of money is one who sees money in precisely the wrong way. Jesus, I said, wants us to learn how to use money But a lover of money is one who is being used by money. Jesus wants us to learn how to allow money to, to serve us, because if we don't learn that, then we end up serving it. And that's the thrust of the last verse, you see. You cannot serve God and money. Either you serve God and use money, or you serve money and try to use God. In the parable, the steward very deliberately uses money to ensure that he will have some friends who will take him in after he's lost his job. And that's not a very noble use of his master's money, is it? But again, that's not really the point. The point, Jesus says, is to think about eternity. Make friends for yourselves by means of your money, he says, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Now think about that rather odd phrase for a moment. You know, you would expect him to say, so they might give you a place to live, so that they might help you out. But he says, so they might welcome you into the eternal homes. What friend is it that has even a possibility of welcoming us into an eternal home? Jesus. Jesus is the only friend who could welcome us into an eternal home. And so he's saying that money, as earthly, as mundane, as potentially dirty and corrupting and even dangerous it may be, money is to be used always with an eye toward eternity. Used, that is, with an eye toward God. Money is to be used in a way that is pleasing to God. In other words, we are to be good stewards of what God has given. Now, let me be clear that I'm not talking here about the money that we put in the offering plate. Stewardship includes that, but it's much bigger than that. Because God's interested in a heck of a lot more than just church. Father Seth and Tara are gone today because they are taking eldest daughter Lena to college. That's a hard thing for a parent to do emotionally. 
You remember that? If you've got kids, do you remember taking the first one to college? I remember dropping my son off and driving away and crying for the first hour in the car. Thursday, I I gave Father Seth a gift. I gave him a box of Kleenex. He knew exactly what it was for. (laughs) So that's for the trip, right? I said, you got it. So it's hard emotionally to send a kid off to college. It's hard financially, too. College is expensive. We had kids in college for seven years in a row, and even with scholarships and loans, it was a sacrifice to do that. Do you think I regret one dollar spent on my kids' education? Nope. And I've never once heard a parent later say, boy, I wish I hadn't spent all that money on my kids. We choose to use money for a purpose that we believe is pleasing to God. We try to make money the servant, not the master. So, how do you use your money? Well, that's a real worldly question, but you see, it's also a spiritual question because it is in the real world that questions of faith really get raised. Whom do you serve? You cannot serve God and mammon. If anything is clear in this strange passage, it is that. So, whom do you serve? It's a tough question that Jesus asks. It's a challenging question. Where is there grace in that question? Where is there hope in this rather strange and troubling parable? Well, I think it comes in in verse 10. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much. You see, being faithful starts with little things. Little steps. Faithful stewardship, like all faithful discipleship, starts with little steps, with being faithful in little matters, and then we grow. That's the promise. That's the hope. It's one thing I've learned over the years, that that faithful, generous giving and living is not a sudden thing for most of us. It isn't a static thing for any of us. It's a matter of growth. Growth that comes not by our own strength or will, but by the tender mercy of God. Those who are lovers of money, like the Pharisees, hear the words of Jesus and they scoff. But those who set their hearts on serving God hear his words and they give thanks. Thanks, first of all, that we have a God who cares about even earthly things like money a God who offers us guidance and direction about how to use it, the God who forgives us when we screw things up, when we find ourselves serving that other God, Mammon, and who gently reminds us that he alone is God, God who walks with us one step at a time as we grow from faithfulness in little things to faithfulness in greater things, a growth that continues all through our lives, until at last he welcomes us into our eternal home. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.